0: Acts chapter 27, this is page 936 of your pew Bibles if you need them. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion, of the, a, a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lacia. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, "'Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives.' "'but the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said, "'and because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, "'the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, "'a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. "'Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, "'they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore,' "'But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, "'and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, "'we gave way to it and were driven along. "'Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, "'we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. "'After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship, "'then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, "'they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along.' Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And on that happy note, let's pray that prayer we pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Man. <clears throat> I was in Philly uh, a week or so ago, and I was listening to the Classic Rock Station down there, and they were giving away tickets to see Styx. Not much of a prize, in my opinion. I'm not a big Styx fan. But uh, to celebrate the upcoming event, they played, not their best hit, but certainly the one they play most often, which is Come Sail Away. I assume most of you know it. It's not the worst song. Not the best either, but like most songs about sailing, um, it makes sailing sound very romantic. I mean, and, and this is true whether it's like, you know, what's the other one? Brandy, You're a Fine Girl, that's, that's another one. Like There's a lot of songs like this. Heck, even Yellow Submarine. Um, it always kind of sounds romantic, but what does what the singer of "Sticks" say? They say, you know, I got to be free is, is the whole reason he's going to sail away. Hopping on a boat is a good way to escape your troubles. A boat means freedom, unless you actually own it, like some people in this neighborhood, uh, and then it's just a millstone around your neck. My old boss at the deli used to say that any boat owner, the the two happiest days of their lives are the days that they they bought it and the day that they got rid of it. But nevertheless, there is something romantic, something thrilling, something freeing about the sea, about being on the open water, because you can imagine that you can go anywhere. Sailing is great, unless you hate the people you're with, or the weather is unfavorable, or as long as you don't get sick. Uh, In other words, sailing is great as long as everything goes right. Now, I'm going to guess most of us don't do much sailing. Allentown has no harbor, unless you count floating down the Lehigh on an inner tube or anything like that. But uh, I think that nevertheless, we can relate to Paul in today's story. Because we've all traveled somewhere on a family trip at some point, right? And we've all had something go wrong. And we've all wondered why we chose to travel with these people. And we've all had the experience of seeing every petty difference that you have with everybody else in the trip. becomes more and more clear the longer time you spend together and the more that goes wrong. So Paul, too, has some cause for asking some of these same kinds of questions. I've said before that Paul's travelogues are typically punctuated by significant events. They kind of sail from port to port, and usually the highlights are what you get to see in the the harbor cities when he actually stops. And what Luke generally leaves out is the particulars of the voyage itself. We get some fleeting details, but mostly we hear what happened once they landed, right? This passage marks a little bit of a shift. Uh, Because rather than highlighting the activity in the cities, this is like the equivalent of describing the car troubles that you experienced on the road. Uh, The focus is not on the destinations, but the voyage itself, which incidentally is terrible. It begins the story of a miserable boat trip where almost everything goes wrong, and it actually kind of fits the irony of that song, Come Sail Away, being sung by a band that's named after the river where you have to cross over when you die. You know, like it's that kind of uh, irony that's just beautiful. well, Paul has no choice but to sail. He didn't choose his company that he's sailing with either. Uh, he's been sent off officially by Festus to go see Nero. But what is the role of Paul, the Christian, on this voyage? How do you represent Christ on the boat? Well, just to set the stage, <clears throat> our narrator starts by giving us a passenger list, just like the, the theme in, in, of Gilligan's Island, Right. It says, when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, uh, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius and embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. Okay, so who's on this boat? Paul, obviously, and other prisoners. This would probably include prisoners from all over the region, Uh, I'm sure some of them are Festus's other prisoners, Uh, some may be from the uh, province of Syria, some might be Agrippa's, Um, anybody with proximity to Caesarea. Uh, And maybe some of them, like Paul, had appealed to Caesar as well. Some could be political prisoners. Almost certainly they're all Roman citizens because you don't send just common prisoners to Rome. So you also have a, a soldier on board named Julius, a centurion with a good Roman name, right? Uh, he's the leader of the Augustan Cohort. That's a, a military unit that was named after the Emperor Augustus who was stationed in Syria for quite some time. So it, it, think of it like you know they're, they're a tough unit facing a, a tough frontier area. So think of them like the Marines here, right? And one can assume that Julius is not alone on the boat. You would have a small detachment of Roman troops, of course, to act as an escort. They're probably all members of the same unit. Uh, The ship, it says, is from Adramidium. You can be forgiven for not knowing where that is. That is a small town in in a province in in Asia, in Turkey. Uh, But more importantly, it's, it's not an actual Roman naval vessel, is what I found interesting. It's a private cargo ship. So basically everybody's flying commercial instead of using a military plane. So who said the Romans weren't frugal, you know? So that means you have an Adramidian crew aboard, most likely, and uh, they're from this region that's not too far from where, uh, uh, from Assos, where, where Paul sailed from some, some chapters back. It's a little north of Ephesus. So, yeah, Anatolian officers and sailors. Uh, and sailors, as we, we mostly know, I think, uh, they have historically been a transient bunch. So I, I'm sure you have some of this crew who are not actually from the home port. You probably have guys from all over the Mediterranean, And you also have Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. That's a considerable amount of detail for a guy who's never mentioned again in the book of Acts. Um, However, Paul does mention Aristarchus in two of his letters. In Colossians 4, he calls him a fellow prisoner. And in Philemon, he refers to him as a fellow laborer. We don't know if he's an actual prisoner of Rome in this particular instance, but this name gets dropped mainly because the people reading this book in the early years would be familiar with this guy. They know him. He may have been a Christian already, or he may have become a Christian during this trip through his interactions with Paul. We don't really know for sure. It doesn't really matter. point is, he's an important figure in the early church. That's why he's mentioned. And also, I I don't know if you've noticed the, the slight alteration in grammar, because you may have noticed that the text slipped back into the first-person plural. We put to sea, which seems to indicate that suddenly Luke has rejoined the picture. Our narrator makes a subtle reappearance in the storyline. He does not explain how this happened. Uh, to, to the best of our knowledge, Paul left Luke and Philippi back in chapter 16. It's been a while. This is a couple of mission trips ago, you know. So they haven't seen each other in years, but apparently at some point... Luke had made the journey all the way to Judea, and he was waiting for Paul when he got out, so to speak. Pardon me. So now Luke's traveling with Paul again as his friend and attending physician, right? And it's also possible that Paul has other friends with him. We don't know. And it's also all but certain that there are other people on the boat that are not mentioned at first. You would have merchants and merchandising agents traveling with the cargo and travelers who purchase tickets to go to Rome or elsewhere in Asia or whatever on business or maybe even tourists and maybe soldiers heading home on furlough. So basically this is the equivalent of a Delta Airlines flight to Washington, D.C., All that to say, this is a a motley assortment of people on this boat, people from all over the empire. You're going to have Jews, you have Greeks, you have soldiers, criminals, uh, sailors, doctors, businessmen. It's a very strange, eclectic mix, but it would have been fairly normal on a ship at that time. This boat is essentially a snapshot of the empire, and and the same thing applies to the next boat, since there's two boats in the story here. It's a diverse cosmopolitan, there's different religions represented, different languages, different classes. And I point that out because it's basically a picture of most of the known world. It's a huge contrast from the world that we've had before this point in history. Before Rome, the Mediterranean world was much more balkanized. And even when you read the Old Testament, you realize that the story is focusing on the Jews. It focuses on them living in the Promised Land, and then they interact with other nations, typically because they're at war with them or whatever. They spend some time sojourning in Egypt and, again, in Babylon. But for the most part, part the, the story is centered on one specific people group, the Jews, and their adventures or misadventures, as the case may be. So it was a big world, and the Old Testament focused on a small part of it. But now Paul, sailing the Mediterranean like this on the equivalent of, like, a Boeing 747, right, This is a picture of a world that has grown much smaller. Rome is everywhere, and in a sense, you could easily rub shoulders with the entire empire on a trip like this. It's maybe not as interconnected as we are today in this world, but it's it's getting there. (laughs) It's much more possible to be a citizen of the world, so to speak, if that makes any sense. And I think that's the picture that Luke is intentionally setting us up with here for both voyages. It's a picture we take for granted in America today, right? We're, we're living in a melting pot. In America today, in every city and town, even the smallest town pretty much, he, America has restaurants that represent the farthest reaches of the world, right? And, and maybe you can't get the best Chinese food in, say, Lehighton. You can probably still get it, right? It's, it's going to be there. Uh, we expect that kind of diversity and that cultural intermingling, but this was a relatively recent phenomenon in the world back then. In so many ways, Rome as the world's superpower is more like our world than we maybe appreciate sometimes. It's a world where you climb aboard a boat and you can meet just about anybody. Rome owns the entire coast. It means travel was easy. It was relatively safe. Call it imperialism, globalism, whatever. It's just that you can, you can meet the whole world on a boat. Now, I don't want to fall into the trap of thinking of this passage as like an allegory, because it's not, but I do think Paul's fourth and final missionary journey here, which is less of a missionary journey and more of a high-seas adventure, provides a picture of what it means for Christians to live and interact with the unbelieving world around us, because in some sense, we're in the same boat together. Paul was literally so, but we all live in a similar reality Like Paul, we have an earthly citizenship. We deal with the same problems as our neighbors. We have earthly, civic, and relational obligations. We laugh, we cry, we get scared just like our neighbors. And perhaps in some sense, what's bad for one of us is bad for all of us, right? Because we're all in the same boat. So how can we love our neighbors while we're on this boat together? And how do we represent Christ while we're on the boat As long as we're stuck together with this unbelieving generation, how can we shine a gospel light when nobody seems to be listening? And I think that will become increasingly clear as we go through this chapter in the coming weeks. But we pick up a few other things from this passage, looking even just at verse 3. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. What a swell guy, Julius. Sidon's just a little bit north of Caesarea, so they've hardly gone anywhere. This is modern-day Lebanon. So this stop is mainly to pick up probably more cargo, more passengers. And Julius gives Paul and his friends an awful lot of freedom and wiggle room. You know, He doesn't really care where they go. He fully trusts and expects Paul to come back to the ship on his own. So Paul must have some kind of reputation. He's not a flight risk, right? Julius can send him into town to have dinner with his friends, and his friends are likely to argue with him like, Hey, look, dude, go into hiding while you can. And he has full confidence Paul will dismiss that idea. He'll be here, and he'll be ready when it's time to leave. And amazingly, Paul is. So on one hand, we get a picture of Julius as a fair and kind man who is not out to get Paul, because not every unbeliever is an antagonist of the church. Um, They are naturally at enmity with God, I believe, but uh, by God's grace, no one's as bad as they could be. So Julius is not a believer yet, but he's not an antagonist either, and I think we all know people like that. But perhaps more importantly, we also get a picture of Paul as someone who is not trying to get away from the rest of the people on the boat. Because you can't represent Christ on the boat if you're not on it. Now, it's obvious that he's already formed a good relationship with the Roman commander. He's not cultivated a reputation as somebody who's argumentative or rebellious. Uh, He may have become friends with Aristarchus already, but Paul's acting like a people person, which is kind of surprising given what he used to be back in the old days. He's not an isolationist, avoiding contact with all these wicked people. His own personal freedom is not his highest value. He has a reputation for being honest, reliable, and committed, And he's happy to go spend time with his believing friends, and he's glad to visit them, but he's not looking for a way off the boat. He's committed to this trip. And I I think just that single verse says a lot about the kind of reputation we should want to have in this world. Success is not avoiding trouble uh, or living in a bubble. But anyway, so far, everything was smooth sailing. Uh, We get our first hints of trouble in four and five it says, "In putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. Okay. You'll see that wind becomes one of the main characters in the story in this chapter. Um, bad weather affects the entire boat. Remember that Paul has the same destination as everybody else. He wants the ship to get safely to its ports, but, but the wind forces them to run east and north up around Cyprus, which is a big island. But what that means is that the open sea was making the captain nervous. So they decided to hug the coast and keep land in sight using Cyprus as a buffer a, to block the wind coming from the south. And if you can see the map, you would realize that this is a much longer route than going under Cyprus if you're trying to get directly to Myra. So this represents a lot of lost time. So, okay, adverse winds mean everything takes longer. We all make plans and chart a course. doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen or happen on schedule. But in any event, they do make it safely to Myra. It's a little late, no worse for the wear. But the, they're late enough, and suddenly it's, it's changed the, the, the calculus a little bit, and they decide to switch boats. In verse 6, says there in Myra, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. So this means a new crew, representing yet more regions of the empire. It's an Alexandrian ship that's a Greek-speaking city in in Egypt, but now you have African citizens on board as well. So the boat changes, uh, but the cosmopolitan setting does not. Uh, But the next leg of the trip gets a little trickier. Verse 7 says, We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Cnidus, And as the wind did not allow us to go farther... We sailed under the Lee of Crete off Salmone. Okay, so the trip to Myra was only the beginning of the struggles, right? Apparently these winds just kept up. Uh, Luke says it was slow going all the way to Canetus. Now, it's a Turkish city still, just a little west of Myra, so they're still just hugging the coast. But basically, what should have taken about a day to get there took several days. So that's slow sailing, and there's nothing worse than slow sailing. Slow driving is bad enough, I know that. I would much sooner get nowhere fast than get somewhere slow. Luke says the arrival, even the landing, was rough too. They get to the coast of, off of Cnidus, and they're already tired, and the wind remains unfavorable. So they creep along the lee of Crete. And when it says that they got to the Salmon, Salmon's not a city. Salmon's a cape at the eastern end of Crete. So this is an attempt to get around that cape and out of the wind. And it's interesting to say that the wind has kept up, but it moved directions now. The last boat went north to get around Cyprus and avoid the south winds coming up from the south. Now they have to go south to get away from winds coming the opposite way, using Crete to to blot the wind that way. So they can't seem to catch much of a break, right? Uh, And things don't get any easier. Verse 8, coasting along with difficulty, we came to a place called Fairhavens, near which was the city of Lycia. All right, so they're still coasting, Luke says, but with difficulty. That's a funny way to word things because we tend to use coasting as a synonym for smooth sailing, don't we? For instance, if I get good grades as a student for three quarters, I can coast in the fourth quarter, right? Because I already put in enough work earlier. Or if I have natural talent, I can coast by instead of practicing my instrument, you know? Now, these examples are coincidentally accurate reflections of myself. Um, I was a modest student who took easy classes where I could, and I let my natural ear carry me on the piano for many years. That's why I eventually had to quit piano. It's also why I almost failed out of seminary. Um, But that's because coasting is supposed to be lazy, right? But Luke says that even coasting in this case has become difficult, in other words, this trip has kind of sucked so far. It, it's been hard work with little progress. The weather's been choppy. The wind's against them. Bad weather also tends to encourage seasickness. I don't know how many of you get motion sickness. I grew up being scared of most amusement rides because I was a victim of it a lot of times. And I, I've mostly gotten over it, but I still can't handle certain rides. A couple of years ago, George and I had the bright idea We're at Knoebels Grove... And I'm, I'm like, well, let's go on one of these kitty rides, and like, it'll be cute. We're like on a date, because my, my mom was watching the kids. And I'm like, well, we'll get on the balloon ride. It's simple. It just goes in a circle. And we got on there and got nauseous from the moment it started, and it was like that for the next three minutes. And when it stopped, as we're getting off, I, I realize I'm seeing that the, the guy running the, the ride in the middle has a, a, a whole canister full of cat litter, and I thought to myself, we're not the first ones. So that's become a key. That's good advice. You go to the amusement parks. If they have kitty litter, then that's usually a sign you don't want to be on that one. Um, I also used to get car sick as a kid every year on the way to the beach. To this day, I can't read in the car without feeling nauseous. It's funny. I don't mind flying, though. I don't understand that. But my boating experience has been pretty limited. I've mentioned before I've been on ferry rides, and that's not that bad. They're big boats. They rock a little bit, but it's only slight. Small boats are another matter entirely. They move much more with the waves, especially if the wind is high, and that's more like when you're going deep-sea fishing on a little dinghy or something. And I did that once, too, but you better believe I took Dramamine on that trip. Your whole world is up and down with every wave, every swell, for hours. And the thing about seasickness is, is that it's impossible to stop once it starts. Once you start puking, it's already too late. There's no amount of Dramamine that's going to help you at that point. So put yourself on this boat with Luke and Paul. This is not the Queen Mary. Okay, This is is a modest Roman-era cargo ship. And since it's not a Navy vessel, and not all the travelers are trained sailors, and since the weather has been lousy, I'm assuming you have some green faces on board. Because not everybody has sea legs. And Luke who's probably the ship's only doctor, has no Dramamine. (laughs) And aside from that, since time is money, the captain and crew cannot possibly be happy because the cargo's going to be late, and therefore their business is also in trouble. So we can assume a certain ambiance at this point on the boat. You have sick passengers, rowdy prisoners, impatient, frustrated sailors, an angry captain, and... Quite a few Roman soldiers as well who were wondering how they got sucked into Navy life. But then they arrive at the most promising-sounding location on the map, Fair Havens. Could there be a more promising label on any map? Luke has been at pains to let us know how very bad this trip has been so far, and now they arrive at Fair Havens. And the name itself advertises beauty and safety. What more could you ask for? It almost sounds cartoonish, like a a town in Lancaster County, like paradise, right? Now, granted, some geographical names are misleading. For instance, Greenland is covered in ice, while Iceland is also covered in ice, but slightly less so. So maybe Fairhavens was one of those names that was more like ironic and meant as a marketing gimmick. You know, like a Toll Brothers development called Shady Acres, but everything's clear-cut or something like that, you know? But to the best of my knowledge, and and as best my research could get me, Fair Havens is not a misleading name. It could just as easily be translated as Good Harbors, literally. It's a natural port, it is well-protected from the elements, and to this day, it's a major ship refueling port in the Mediterranean. Nowadays, it's just got a small village attached to it, but in Paul's day, it was near two sizable cities. Uh, Luke only names one of them here, Lacia, but it would be hard to find a better harbor. It's exactly what a boat full of logical people should be looking for. It's picture perfect, to the point of seeming almost comically so. It actually reminded me, when I was a kid, one one year we went out camping. I think it was a camping trip. We went out west to western Pennsylvania, not, not far. Uh, What I do remember more clearly is that the car broke down, which was a common theme with our 85 Chevy Caprice station wagon. Um, The funnier part that I did remember is that we broke down in Mechanicsburg. (laughs) It was just too perfect. My dad didn't see the humor at the time, but, but Fairhavens would seem to be a good place to rest and recuperate, and so Paul, not to be a nuisance, decides, maybe I'll speak up here. Verses 9 and 10, So, much, so much, Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Representing Christ on the boat sometimes means giving wise, humble, and life-saving advice. Paul checks his calendar. He realizes winter is not too far off. Yom Kippur was last week. In other words, it's about the same time of year as it is now. Uh, It's fall heading into winter, and Paul's no sailor, but he's done some traveling, and he knows you typically avoid sailing in winter because the weather is rough. In other words, look, these winds are not likely to get any more gentle, so Paul makes the humble suggestion maybe we should just stay put. Paul has proven he's not trying to avoid anything. He's not on the run. But he offers this counsel for the good of everyone on the boat. He's not saying that he's tired of sailing. He's saying the situation is dangerous. It's going to cost them cargo. That's what the businessmen in the boat care about. Or even their lives, which everyone else cares about. So fair havens is the easier, safer decision. And Paul has the added advantage of knowing that a sovereign God seems to be indicating that he wants to slow them down. However, I want you to notice that Paul does not try to take over. He doesn't yell at the captain. He doesn't get into fearful hysterics. There's not a hint of panic in Paul's words. He makes a logical observation and gives them a calm warning. Sirs, I perceive that this trip isn't going so hot. But he never browbeats the captain or the centurion. He simply gives his best counsel. And what does that get him? Well, the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, why, I don't know. The majority decided to put out the sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. A modest plan. Apparently the centurion, since he's representing Roman military, he gets the final shot, but the captain says, look, let's keep going. And perhaps more important, the owner of the ship is on board, and he also says we should keep going. Apparently, he never heard that joke that my boss used to tell. And no sailor likes a landlubber telling him what to do, I know. And, and soldiers probably feel the same way about their prisoners. But in the end, Luke says a majority had voted to keep moving. Elections have consequences. One thing Christians get used to is being outvoted. Um, The direction of the ship affects us all, but we seldom actually get a say in where we're going. But the commanders have a plan, and it's a modest plan, something of a gamble to judge by Luke's language. But the idea is that somehow, if they're lucky, they'll be able to sail to Phoenix. What's that song? Oceanfront Property in Arizona? I forget who sings that. Different Phoenix, I guess. Actually, this is literally only the next harbor over. Everything in between is rocky cliffs. There are no towns in between, but it's a short distance. Today, you can drive from Fair Havens to the ruins of Phoenix, and it takes about 45 minutes. And it's not a straight line. You have to go back up inland and then come back. As the crow flies, it's only about two, three miles. So even with the wind against them, this should only take a couple hours, a three-hour tour at most. And then we'll be (laughs) in a better harbor. So shut up, Paul. The experts have spoken. Know your place. Let us handle this. And what could possibly go wrong? (laughs) Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along creek close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind, called the northeaster, struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Curtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Well, that sounds great. They said they were going to Phoenix, just a couple miles that way, and the weather got calm for a minute, and you can almost hear them sneering at Paul, and then the nor'easter hits them and things get ugly. Just to give you some perspective to understand what's happening here, Cauda, this little island, is like 40 miles away from Fair Havens, way out in the open sea. That's how far they got pushed initially. And the island is only seven miles wide, and they're desperately trying to hide behind that. It didn't even work up on Crete, but now they're trying this on this little lump of rock here. And just to give you more perspective, when verse 17 says they were afraid of crashing on the Sirtis, that's Africa. They are literally in danger of being blown all the way to Tunisia. That's what's happening here. That's how bad this has gotten. So how's this trip going? They are hundreds of miles off course. The cargo has been lost. The ship is falling apart. They're trying to repair it mid-sea. They've sacrificed all their equipment. And now they haven't seen the sun or the stars in days. That's freaky and scary. They have no idea where they are. And now there's a straight up storm moving in, it says. Not just the wind, it says, no small tempest, Luke says. You know, some of your Bibles have a map of this journey and it just looks like a nice gentle curve up over here that lands, it's just like, I don't think it looked like that. I think there's a little more loops in there. And Luke says, whatever shred of hope they were clinging to finally faded. A few years ago, I read a book called The Raft. I forget who even wrote it. It's the true story of, of three soldiers who were shot down over the Pacific during World War II and they They got in their raft, and they fought off starvation and thirst. They were catching rain in their pockets and drinking it, whatever they had to do. Sharks, sunstroke, heavy storms. They argued with each other. Sometimes they nearly drowned when the raft would flip. And yet for weeks, they tried to row toward where land should be using two surviving shoes. Only one of them had his boots on when they landed. And somehow they did make it to a small island, and they were rescued. And what's remarkable when you read it is that these guys never quite lost all hope. This guy insisted, no, I was navigating, I was using the stars, and I was using our shoes, and we were, we were scooping the water up, and I was actually intending to get to this island chain. That's hope. Call that American can-do spirit. I don't know what you want to call it. But Luke says that these men on this ship, they were broken. They had given up hope. Now, I'm stopping here today at this cliffhanger lost at sea, and we're going to see next week whether they make it. But what I want us to start thinking about is what it means to be a Christian in the boat, surrounded by a diverse group of unbelievers, all heading as fast as they can toward their own destruction, against your advice. Because, brothers and sisters, that's a picture of where we are. It's a microcosm of life as a Christian in this world. And this passage is not a random event. We just spent several weeks talking about Paul's final speech in Judea with Festus and Agrippa. And what was the theme of that speech? What was Paul pushing? Keyword. Hope. Hope in the resurrection, right. Hope was the theme of the speech. Hope, this thing that he hated, that he resisted, that he fought against, but ultimately it got a hold of him and it changed him. And yet now, in today's passage, what has everybody on this boat just abandoned? Hope. No one in this world has hope. I think they're very good at pretending that they do, or at least pretending that having no hope doesn't bother them. But whatever hope they think they have is false, and I think a lot of people, honestly, if you push them to the point of despair, the facade starts to vanish. And the men on this boat have lost their money, their sense of direction, and all pretense of safety, and they don't have their sweethearts with them or anything like that. They've lost everything that carnal man lives for. And they have no hope left, and they can't pretend otherwise. And it's not so much, I don't think, that the storm robbed them of their hope as much as their hopelessness has been revealed by the storm. Because in the end, everyone knows they're going to die and that all will be lost anyway. And being lost at sea just kind of makes that a little more immediately clear. Like receiving a terminal diagnosis. It forces you to face the music. Now, Paul has been quiet since they left Fairhavens. He's going to speak more next week, and we can only assume that he's been doing anything he can to help the sailors do their work. I'm imagining every able-bodied man on the boat is doing everything they can, but they can't stop the wind. But, beloved, who controls the wind? Jesus. I had a sudden picture in my head while reading this this week that this entire trip Jesus is like trolling these sailors and chasing them all over the Mediterranean, up and down. And why? I think he does it to drive them to abandon their false hopes, their self-confidence, their financial investments, their plans for the future, their physical health, their very survival. It's all gone. And what's Paul's role? How does he represent Christ on the boat? What does the Christian do while the rest of the boat is trying to save themselves? Does he quit or get frustrated? No. He cheerfully stays with them. He gives wise counsel whether they listen or not. He helps out where he can. And most importantly, he waits on God. Because it's God's job to break them. And not Paul's. God will get them to listen in his time. Paul and his friends are the only ones on the boat that have any hope. Not only because Paul knows that Jesus promised he would get him to Rome, but even if he doesn't get there, Paul has the peace of the gospel. He knows that Christ died for him, Christ was raised for him, Christ has redeemed him, so he has hope. Even if he dies, he gets to be with Jesus as Savior. His biggest problems are over, and brothers and sisters, that's our task too. If we are in Christ, we have the same hope. It's not that the storms don't affect us all. Of course they do. We're in the same boat. So the tragedies of the world, they hit us too, but we represent Christ because we have a hope that they don't, and it's worth sharing. And we're going to see how Paul does that more next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this adventure story, Lord, that the book of Acts is. And it's an adventure not because we don't know the the end of it or or it could go any which way. Lord, we know that you're going to win and we know know where you're leading these things. Lord, we thank you that you are the master of the the winds and that you control the seas. Lord, none of these things are outside of your grasp. Your word makes that abundantly clear. But Lord, even as a, a picture of the life that we live, Lord, in this world... Lord, we are, we are all in this, this boat together, Lord, and, and there are a lot of ups and a lot of downs. And there's a lot of false hope out there. Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to give wise counsel, Lord, and to be patient and, Lord, to represent you well and to shine forth your love, Lord, and the hope of the gospel and of the resurrection. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Chris, fades the wither. I don't even know what I'm saying anymore. (laughs) The word of our God will stand forever. (laughs)